They say writing a memoir is like living your life twice. I had to shift my mindset from being a reporter, as I was in the first two books, to actually being a character in my own book. You really, really have to dig down. It felt like emotional fracking. It was like, oh my God, do I have to go there? It's very much about the wine industry, about the misogyny that is still going on in the wine industry. And that one year, my professional and personal life kind of exploded. But writing this memoir has helped me put it all together again in what I think is a really powerful story for other people, not just women, but people in the industry and outside of it. It's the hardest thing I've ever done because it's so personal. Putting a wine book out there versus a wine memoir is kind of the difference between going on an interview versus going on a date. Do you have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 220. How can you learn more about food and wine without the intimidation factor? Why does exploring outside your area of comfort often drive inspiration and innovation? And why is writing a memoir like living your life twice? You'll hear those tips and stories in part two of my chat with Lawrence Francis, host of the Interpreting Wine podcast. You don't have to have listened to part one from last week first, but I hope you'll go back if you missed it after you finish this one. Lawrence is actually interviewing me and I have lots of juicy stories and tips to share with you. Now a quick update on my upcoming memoir, Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much. Every time a beta reader emails me and says, I'm so brave for exposing myself so publicly in my memoir, I get really nervous. I know they mean well, but I wonder, did I go too far? I write about my issues with drinking too much wine during my divorce and career meltdown. I also talk about being hyper-competitive and a perfectionist. Perhaps putting that all on the page is, was a way of holding myself to public accountability because anyone who reads the book now will know all my flaws and I'll know they know. And there's no more slipping up in private. That's the downside of being so open. The upside is the amazing connection I feel with readers when they send me comments about the book, especially when they tell me they feel they're not alone in their struggles. And now, so do I. Here's a review from Tom Lutz, a beta reader in Iowa. Wine Witch on Fire is a deeply personal, yet artfully entertaining introspective that doesn't just tell Natalie McLean's story, but invites you into it. I'm always particularly intrigued by books that make me really stop and think, and I found myself doing just that multiple times throughout this book. Five stars. Thank you, Tom. 
I've posted a link to a blog post called Diary of a Book Launch in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 220. This is also where I share more behind-the-scenes stories about the journey of taking this memoir from idea to publication. If you want a more intimate insider seat beside me on this journey, please let me know you'd like to become a beta reader and get a sneak peek at the manuscript. Email me at natalie at nataliemclean.com. Okay, on with the show. The thing that probably surprised me the most was being based in London, I assumed that UK would always be my biggest audience. And it was that way to begin with. But even in the first year, it was 40% UK, 25% US. And last year and now through into this year, the US has now overtaken the UK. So I think, you know, we can definitely say that some of the other stats out there around I think the U.S.'s thirst for wine and thirst for wine yes. education. I think all of these other trends are great to kind of have out there and kind of try to triangulate. And I think that's definitely yeah. coming through in podcasts, which is already a channel that they've embraced and they've embraced certainly a higher rate than we have in the U.K., but we're catching up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And yeah, it's such a bigger market. It's 10 times that of Canada. And even though our percentage of podcast listeners is greater mm -hmm. per capita, mm -hmm. the U.S. is so much larger. And so, yeah, we get lots of U.S., U.K. as well, Australia, yeah. Yeah. and of course, Canadian. Yeah, listeners. this is it. This is it. All those sort of, yeah, Eng English-speaking markets. And I think the thing that's always been interesting for me as well has been that countries like Spain and Italy and Portugal, a lot of them have the approach and the strategy to export their wines. And I think that they yes. seem to like targeting those markets because I think you do have a drinker and certainly a trade that is educating itself and is essentially equipping themselves with the knowledge to be able to share that producer story and that regional story and to really, you know, create compelling return and audio content based on that. Absolutely. And, you know, for Canada especially, but also to a certain extent, the U.S., mm -hmm. We don't have a long tradition of winemaking as you do in Europe, mm -hmm. and we're not the center of wine trade as you were in London. Or, so, I mean, it was beer and whiskey if you go way back in history. And so North America is a thirsty to learn from many wine cultures and learn about many wine types. We're not as, you know, I'm just imagining here, if you're born in mm -hmm. Bordeaux, you mm -hmm. probably grew mm -hmm. up drinking mm -hmm. Bordeaux, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what the main thing is. I know people are all branching out these days, but... It's so diverse in North America, the thirst to learn and the thirst for wines from different countries. Fascinating. And yeah, possibly my last direct question about the podcast, but uh, <laughs> I always do this. I always get a, yeah, when I hear an interesting answer, another question will always come up. But just noticing that you've mentioned beer and whiskey a couple of times, and I'm curious, enough, have you always kept your topics focused on wine and people related to wine? Have you ever been tempted to broaden out if that's not the case yet? Well, my podcast is called Unreserved Wine Talk, but I could add maybe a tagline, P.S. Whiskey too, <laughs> or Beer too. I haven't um, focused on beer and whiskey mm -hmm. or spirits mm -hmm. on the podcast. It's something I consider. Again, it would be based on the storytelling, and I think there's yeah. plenty of stories in beer and whiskey. Now, some of my, especially the writers I've interviewed, also write about other drinks. So Mallory O'Meara, the book I just mentioned, she writes about bourbon and so on. So we do touch on mm -hmm, those topics mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. well. 
So it's something to consider. I want to make sure that I'm still focused as a, I don't know, brand positioning, yeah. if you will, that, yeah. you know, you come to me to learn about wine, to hear wine stories. But, you know, I also talk about wine and spirits on television here in Canada quite frequently. And spirits are usually part of that mix as well. So I do do probably more spirits and beer on the TV work that gotcha. I do than the podcast. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And this is perfect alignment because my next question was actually going to be around yeah, wine communication, but really yeah, broadening it out into those different channels. And I'm just aware that we haven't spoken about the work that you do with television in Canada. So I wonder if, yeah, you just sort of yeah, paint us that picture of, again, how did that come to be a thing and what does that currently look like? Sure. So on my first book tour, Random House was amazing. And they took me across the country and down through the States and booked me on radio and TV shows. I had no idea like how this happened. Like I would never be able to do that myself at the first time, but they had a publicist dedicated. It was the mm -hmm. good old days mm -hmm. when writers actually did do book tours. And so I made a lot of contacts with various hosts and TV radio producers and a number of them said, okay, this is fun. We've had a great chat. Why don't you come back and just talk about wine? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily mm -hmm. your book, but let's mm -hmm. talk about wines for the holidays, wines for chocolate pairing at Valentine's Day, wines for whatever. And so I returned to those places and they would introduce me via my book, which was great for the book, but we talked mostly about other topics, wine related. Same thing happened with Unquenchable, my second book. So I've been doing TV longer, much longer than podcasts. But what's happened, especially with COVID, mm -hmm. is that I'm doing remotes now. Like you and I, yeah. we're talking yeah. right now. The TV stations all had to pivot to that. And so what that did was enabled me from my office, where I am now, to go on shows across the country. So it's never been crazier or busier than right now, because <laughs> everyone wants to talk about holiday wines. But, you know, like this week... I've spoken about holiday wines on 12 different television shows, but I can do it because it's right here. It's so yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah. And I don't have to fly to Saskatchewan or down to Halifax. So my focus has been largely on Canada. It'd be great for the sake of book three to branch out to the States. But yeah, that's kind of how it's really changed. I like it a lot. And being a natural hermit introvert, <laughs> I love being able to just, you know, get a nice blouse on wear my shorts, which is what I'm doing now, <laughs> probably too much information, and just do Get the, get the heating remote. on, I guess, and uh, you've got yeah, exactly. well, well insulated <laughs> homes every Canada, I'm sure. Exactly. So it's just so easy, and it's opened up a new world of reaching far more wine lovers, consumers, readers, podcast listeners than I could have ever pre-COVID. Is there a sense that that is going to be sort of staying around as we go into 2022. I mean, I've certainly seen mm -hmm. in the UK, you know, program here, Saturday Kitchen, where they have, you know, the regular drinks expert on, and they were always previously in studio. They then went to being on the screen, and then they're back in the studio as far as I can remember. But I'm just curious, is there mm -hmm. a sense of you will kind of never go back to being there in person, or is that still up in the air? Well, as an introvert, I hope I never have to go back to a studio. Thank you. And it's just so time consuming. But anyway, first world problems. So I live in Ottawa. Toronto is an hour flight away. And so if I'm on a morning show in Toronto and have to be there physically, mm. usually I'm staying overnight the night before. And 
I'm happy to do that. But so far, no one's asked me to travel. And so for shows that are even further away, it's probably not practical cost-wise or time-wise, because some of these shows that I'm doing coast-to-coast are four and five hours away. But we've had such a good experience doing mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. and the hosts keep asking me back. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping it will stay either like that or at least hybrid, where perhaps I go physically to the stations that are closest to me. But for those further away, I'm hoping that continues. It looks like it's going to, because it's easy for them as well. But we'll see. Fascinating. And yeah, I think that that gives us a really interesting window into wider wine communication. And I think, yeah, fascinating that there are so many opportunities, I would say. It sounds as though, I say, right the way across Canada, right the way across the States, Looking back, maybe, you know, broadening it out potentially as well, what do you think has been, you know, some other major developments in terms of wine communication really, you know, since COVID and over the last sort of 18 months? Are there themes and, yeah, strategies maybe that you see particular regions or particular wine styles or or magazines using to keep the audience more engaged? I think the one that jumps out, it's probably not going to be surprising, is just the plethora of online wine tastings Mm -hmm. and then consumer acceptance of not just tastings, but online courses. Mm -hmm. Because I know Mm -hmm. during COVID, and it continues to this day, my own online courses have exploded in terms of the number of people registering Mm -hmm. for them, Mm -hmm. which is awesome because (laughs) not only can I earn a living at this, but the people are connecting with each other around the world. And I think that is really important, whether we're in a pandemic or not, that connection, that feeling like I have a group that I belong Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, who shares mm -hmm, my passion. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of Psalms and even WSET3s and winemakers take my food and wine pairing classes because a lot of the other designations, official designations, don't dive into that quite as deeply as I do. That's Mm -hmm, my passion mm -hmm, is mm -hmm, it's all about mm -hmm, food and wine mm -hmm. pairing my courses And it's just so much fun that you have these professionals, Psalms and so on, taking it. But you also have beginners because food is so universally accessible. You know, we don't worry about the vintage of the roast chicken. We're not trying to figure out all of that. But so if you take people into the world of wine through food, you just find it's so much more, well, as I say, accessible. But it also brings together that spectrum again of both the experts and the beginners. And we can talk on one level without anybody feeling embarrassed or bored about food and wine pairing. So, you know, we take the deep dive into, you know, shellfish or, you know, takeout food. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, but still applying the principles of Mm -hmm. what's happening Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. chemically in your mouth, you know, that sort of thing. So that's really changed the whole consumer acceptance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of online learning and the delivery mechanisms. Now, I came from the world of high tech, so I had this set up, fortunately, before COVID, like I had all the systems and, you know, we do live interaction, there's pre-recorded stuff. So if they're on the go or they miss the live session, they always yeah, get the yeah, videos. Yeah. They know they have lifetime access to mm-hmm, everything, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm, very different mm-hmm. from a one and done kind of in-person course. So Amazing. Yeah. And I'm so interested in that dynamic that you're describing there, Natalie, because I think it's something that I have touched on at various points through my journey and just that idea of I don't know exactly why but we are in wine we you know people again huge generalization but people will be 
more reserved to give an opinion about a wine than they will be about a chocolate or a beer or just, I think, just about any other kind of liquid or substance out there. And I'm just curious, did you kind of, in a sense, bake that interaction and that openness into the courses and into the structure? Maybe give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain in terms of how you draw people out in what can be quite sort of a scary subject for certainly people coming into it for the first time. Sure. So leading with food helped. So my flagship course is called the Wine Smart Course, a full-bodied framework to taste, buy, and pair wine like a pro. And so that captures, as I say, both those who are new to wine, but also the Psalms and W sets and so on who feel Mm -hmm. that's missing Mm -hmm. from what they've been able to study online or in person. And the engagement, again, it's not as socially stigmatized. There's not as much tension because we're talking about roast chicken first or whatever. It's far Mm -hmm. more granular Mm -hmm. than that Mm -hmm. food wise, Mm -hmm. but people will venture an opinion more about food as the entry point. And then of course, online, you're not sitting in a physical class, afraid to raise your hand and look stupid. You can, with an online class, even if it's live, you don't even have to have your camera on. So I get lots of people easing into it who just are not comfortable. And then eventually as the course goes on, or even as an evening goes on, I see them flip on their cameras. They don't have to, but people warm up. Once they know it's okay, and no one's going to be made a fool, and that all questions are welcome, and it sparks the discussion, and people say, I felt that way too. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. what books and memoirs are about. But classes can be that kind of warmer learning environment that gradually gets people from where they are to where they want to be in their confidence. I love it. Yeah. I think just, again, making connections to the various events that I've attended. And yeah, I don't know that there's any that have ever started with food. Thinking back now, most start with geography. And you would say there's a logical route there to talking about geography and potentially some of the features or the characteristics of the wine that that then informs. But that being said, geography is geography. You know, it's kind of, you don't really have an opinion on geography. It kind of just is. But I really think you're onto something there. And I think that your results are really showing that in terms of the food being that thing that the people feel already naturally able to talk about and able to kind of have an opinion on. That sounds as though it's, yeah, something that my listeners who, you know, a lot of them are in the trade and are communicators. I think that that is going to be a really strong takeaway point for them. Oh, that's great, Lawrence. And, you know, I do think there's a parallel with starting a book mm-hmm. with your hook, mm-hmm. your feet mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. starting a course with the food, the food will draw them in. That's the hook. And then we can back out and say, okay, these wines would go with the food. So let's tantalize and destigmatize or get them relaxed with the food. Let's talk about just yeah. pull it out of the examples, but roast chicken. Okay. Everybody's relaxed. We're talking about roast chicken. <laughs> And then, you know, what seasonings, if we had time with it, if we had this, if we had that, and people are contributing and like, how could this be done? And then let's back out and talk about wine styles that go with that. Why? Well, why takes you right to geography. Your geography is your backstory, Mm -hmm. but you have to earn their attention first. You have to make them relax first. And I think food will do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And maybe you don't want them too hungry either. (laughs) I guess if you're talking about food and they're hungry, then their mind will probably end up in their stomach rather than on the content. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I invite people, though, to snack while we're doing our courses. Often they actually will bring a little bit or sometimes dinner with them so they we can be doing the pairing. Yeah, so it's yeah, okay yeah. if they get hungry, as long as they stay thirsty too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, the two go together. I'm delighted that you've mentioned Laura Bell Gray already, who is yeah somebody who I discovered this summer, actually, from her various podcast appearances. And, you know, she's a fabulous copywriter and runs copywriting <sighs> courses. And just, yes. yeah, really, I think there's just so much there to learn from in a communication sense. And she is not, and I don't think has ever written directly about wine. She was very, I think, pleased to see me tagging her in an interview that I did in which I mentioned her as as an influencer for me. And uh, she had a good laugh about that. So, (laughs) Yeah, no, she's great. I've taken her copy cure course and some others with her. She's just fabulous. As you know, she writes these fantastic emails. I'll have to tag her again. And talking about the most mundane mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm, but the details mm-hmm, are specific. Mm-hmm. So she might be talking about losing her car keys in the parking lot. She has a good wit, good humor. But what happens is the details paint a picture, mm-hmm. they resonate. And then you, as a reader of what she's saying, you say, oh yeah, I've been in that situation or something like it where I had the same feelings. And then you follow her down. And then as she gets further down her email, she often has a pitch for what she's yeah. selling. Yeah. But first, yeah. you have to get their attention yeah. before you sell. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Let us in a little bit to, I guess, who is on your podcast player or who is in your inbox. Yeah, And I think, you know, I'd like to ask it through that lens of, in terms of maybe that the listeners haven't come across, in terms of communication, is out there doing things and putting out content that you think actually you know, more people in wine could actually benefit from engaging with this. So Lawrence, I think I heard you mention this on one of your previous podcasts. I listened to your podcast, of course, to determine Mm -hmm. that I wanted to invite Mm -hmm. you onto Mm -hmm. mine. But I think you two aren't a big listener of wine podcasts. Yeah, just to keep it kind of pure and and not influenced so I don't end up sounding like, you know, a Gary Vaynerchuk knockoff or or something. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I will listen to wine podcasts only when I'm sort of searching for my next guest. Mm, So mm. I will listen to a bunch of the guests' episodes as background research. But for my personal enjoyment podcast listening, I have several veins. I love tech podcasts because I used to be in high tech, but also I find I want to keep up on the tech Mm, trends mm, that can mm. help me with what I do in wine communication. So there's a podcast called Prof G, and it's Scott Galloway. And he has his own podcast, but he also has a podcast with Kara Swisher of the New York Times. And they'll talk mostly about high-tech trends, whether it's companies or new programs or technologies. So I've always got my ear to hear what they're saying about tech. I'm just interested, even if it doesn't apply to my business specifically. Then the other vein I have is book podcasts. Mm -hmm. So I'm really binge listening to book podcasts right now for how to market a book. So I also love book podcasts that review books, but right now I'm on to marketing books, which I think is a lot like marketing wine. It's that long tail experience mm-hmm, of there's mm-hmm. thousands, hundreds, millions, I don't know, of books. Same with wine. Wine's even more 
trickier because it changes every year, whereas a book usually stays the same once it's published. I'm very interested in book marketing podcasts, like Reading Glasses by Mallory O'Meara, the S-H-I-T, no one tells you about books. So they're always going over all of these techniques and so on. And then beyond that, I love great interviewers, no matter what they do. Tim Ferriss, Mm -hmm. because I'm listening Mm -hmm. for how he Mm -hmm. interviews people, his techniques. He's one, but I'm sure you have some. Lawrence, who would be your favorite podcast? Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of them already. I don't think I've really mentioned Tim Ferriss too much, but he's definitely... I always remember reading an article about his podcast and his format and the fact that I think he was doing three-hour episodes before Joe Rogan was around, for example. So I think, you know, Tim is a bit of a, yeah, an OG podcast guy. I tend to listen to more, as I say, Joe Rogan more on the clips. I actually tend to more look at his video. So it actually, yeah, back to your earlier point around the audiences being different. I haven't gotten drawn into listening to Joe Rogan on my podcast. I'll tend to be a little bit more people who I can learn something from. And really, yeah, just thinking back right the way to how I even got to Laura Belgray. (laughs) It was actually one of her I guess, colleagues and friends, a lady called Tarzan Kay, who I think is actually Canadian. Oh, yes, I've taken courses yeah. with Tarzan. <laughs> so, and I she's Canadian Tarzan. as well, isn't she? And, Yay, and yes. she was a guest on the Future podcast. It's spelled F-U-T-U-R. And it's yeah headed up by this guy called Chris Doe, D-O. And he, for many years, led a really successful design studio called blind and they were doing you know these fantastic videos and graphics and you know all the cool stuff but he's now changed his direction and now runs this business called the future which does online courses for creatives so their mission is to keep creatives doing what they love doing and to not have to go and get a job (laughs) with them i'll dip into their youtube i'll dip into just about everything really right the way across the board but the way that they use technology And I think he was the first person I saw at the start of COVID to be giving a class as I sort of waved my hands, uh, stood in front of all of these different screens in front of him. So to almost try to get that, I'm in an auditorium feel. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And, you know, Tarzan's appearance on that was, had me hooked as soon as I heard her speaking and then she mentioned Laura Bell Gray. So it all, everyone's sort of, yeah, one degree of separation away from one another. It is, isn't it uncanny? <laughs> I was in a mastermind with Tarzan. She is amazing. Yeah, so she's also aces at copywriting and yeah, really good. Fant- we'll have to tag her. Yeah, <laughs> no, fantastic. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think as well, I think there's something to be said, you know, maybe don't have to over egg the point, but just around keeping your influences open, you know, it, it's my impression mm-hmm. that I think often wine regions will look to other wine regions for their inspiration and that may be that there's a lot of sort of fast following going on and a lot of essentially sort of you know trying to copy the success that others have had which is of course totally understandable but i think also you know kind of one of the wonderful things around our current state of communication is that you've got lots of different channels to try out and and even within those different channels you can be running experiments and you can be making content for a particular demographic over here in, in that region and for somebody quite different over there. And actually, 
I think something you've said, which really resonates, you know, what it does, it, it opens a conversation. It, it actually lets you, again, break the fourth wall and actually mm-hmm. have that direct contact with people, which is, I think, so valuable. Yeah. And I think still something that I think wineries and wine regions, I think, can can certainly learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're saying reminds me, so that conversation happens because people will email you far more mm-hmm. based on a podcast or a personal newsletter than anything. I really don't get emails from Facebook video mm-hmm. watchers mm-hmm. or that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. But just speaking about technology, I've been using some new software for beta readers of my new memoir. And it was incredible because as they were reading the text, they were doing comments and emojis and all the rest of it. And I felt we were in conversation because they'd say, oh yeah, I relate to this and that. And so, you know, I think when you get into the long form and the two that stand out again, to say it again, podcasts and long form books, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that is mm -hmm. where the conversations happen, not just a little tweet or a Instagram post. I know everybody's hep up on Instagram, but I don't see sales coming from Instagram. I do from podcasts and books. This is the thing. And I talk about this more on, on my Instagram feed in, at Interpreting Wine. And I just bring it up simply because it's something that I mentioned a few weeks ago. And, and actually, again, I, you know, I do have a lot of empathy around the reasoning behind this. But I do see a lot of wine regions literally putting up 10-second videos on YouTube. and. Mm. If the view count is kind of all that you care about, maybe that's the way to go because you get somebody there and I think a view counts after sort of three seconds. But I just always ask myself, you know, how much value can you actually, that better be a pretty amazing 10 seconds. You know, if you're going to tell a story, if you're going to pack in even a little bit of value there, if you're going to engage and make something that's quite memorable, it it better be a pretty phenomenal 10 seconds. (laughs) Exactly. Because it's not about just hooking the person to buy your wine the first time. It's about ongoing loyalty. And that requires a story. Yeah. You know, if you want purchase and repurchase and going deeper and going up your more expensive wines or whatever it is, that requires a relationship and storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's the sort of, yeah, the influence of TikTok uh, coming through and influencing YouTube. But again, I think there's something to be learned that, you know, the people who are creating those TikToks that do draw people in, they are telling a story, but they can tell it in yes. five seconds or they can tell it in three seconds. Yeah. But that is obviously quite a relatively new skill. But again, I think something that will be increasingly important as we move forward and as our attention gets pulled in so many more directions. Absolutely. I want to just close off and I think give you the chance to take us a little deeper into your memoir, something that I'm happy that you've hinted at. And, you know, maybe you're, you know, using your own techniques there, sort of opening those loops about the memoir <laughs> right from, right ah, from the start. That. So hopefully we... Saw what I did. <laughs> it's worked on me as well. So, so I'm, I'm now, yeah, super curious to hear more about this book. And yeah, it's, it sounds like fascinating development process. And yeah, take us into that process of really yeah, how that came to be off the back of two quite different books. Well, thank you for asking, Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this one is quite different from the first two. So the first two were kind of like wine adventures. Mm. My inspiration Mm. for them was Kermit Lynch, Adventures on the Wine Route. So he would go to different places and talk 
two wacky winemakers and, you know, who had a story to tell. Mm-hmm. I'm sounding like a broken record, but that's what I did in Red, White and Drunk All Over and Unquenchable. I found the most interesting winemakers in the world and I went to visit them and did things with them, like whether it was shark diving off the coast of South Africa or milking goats and pairing cheese or whatever. So it was first person, but it wasn't really a memoir. Mm-hmm. And this one is. So this one, it, they say writing a memoir is like living your life twice, which can be good or bad, depending on what <laughs> part you're writing about. But in this memoir, I'm writing about the worst vintage of my life, my writing life, both personally and professionally was the year I got divorced, but also I experienced a blow up on social media back in the heyday 2012 when Twitter was even worse than it is today. (laughs) But I won't go into all the details because I do want people to actually buy this memoir. I'm very excited that it's going to have a home and be published in 2023. It's been a real journey. I had to shift my mindset almost like Mm -hmm. from being a reporter as I was in the first two books to actually being a character in my own book. Because memoir really does more than anything else in nonfiction, take the techniques of fiction. So there's character development, there's plot Mm -hmm. development, Mm -hmm. there's like the narrative arc and so on. And you really, really have to dig down. It felt like emotional fracking. It was like, oh my God, do I have to go there? And so, but I had some great editors that I worked with through my agent. So to get into these techniques. So it's very much about the wine industry, about the misogyny that is still going on in the wine industry and other issues and what it's like being a woman in the industry. But it's really the structure or the framework is that one year because Mm -hmm. it coincided. Mm -hmm. My professional and personal life kind of exploded. But now- writing this memoir has helped me put it all together again in what I think is a really powerful story for other people, not just women, but people in the industry and outside of it, I hope. Of course, I have hopes for that. But Mm -hmm. you know, it's unlike anything I've ever done. It's the hardest thing I've ever done because it's so personal. Putting a wine book out there versus a wine memoir is kind of the difference between going on an interview for a job you want for the first one versus going on a date. Yeah. You know, the fit, yeah. it's quite different mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. interview versus a yeah. date. And it just hits more personally. So that's kind of the overview of what this is about. And on my podcast, I'm going to take people through the journey of publishing that book. So I'll still have interviews with other folks, but I'll always start off the podcast now with what's happening with the book. So they can follow the journey right from the time it's bought by a publisher to publication. So I want to share that story too. I love it. Yeah. I alluded to earlier around that idea of breaking the fourth wall, you know, and actually seeing behind you and, you know, getting an insight into your life. And yeah, I'm again, sort of taken back to an inspiration of mine, Gary Vaynerchuk, which is that, you know, that sort of document don't create. And I think that that will be a phenomenal journey. A, for the existing podcast audience, but I think I would imagine it also makes good business as well, because I think it will yeah. give you that content that your existing audience can kind of hook somebody else with and say, you're writing a book or you're interested in the book writing process, or you know, you just want to learn deeper and communicate better. It feels as though all yeah. of those things will be coming through 
on that journey. And I think it sounds like, a, you know, an absolutely brilliant decision to, to go ahead and do that. It's something just to draw the parallel a winemaker could do or a sommelier yeah. studying for yeah. the master of wine. Yeah. Take people on yeah. the journey with you because they'll be more invested. First of all, I think it will make a good story. But second of all, they'll be more invested. So in the case of a winemaker, maybe it's like, you know, weekly reports, oh, I'm here in the fields and, blah, and there's, you know, the blight is on this vine and I don't know financially, we're having trouble or whatever. But take them on that whole roller coaster ride and they will be more invested at the end in your success and your product. So I am hoping it is a business strategy that people will be more invested in the book and actually buy it, pre-order it. Pre-orders are important, people, but Hardback not yet. Hardback still? Is that also? I remember reading that once, hardback pre-orders as well, or any pre-orders. Yes. Pre-orders, yes. Depending on if it's published first as a hardback or paperback, okay. memoirs tend to come out in paperback unless you're Michelle Obama or <laughs> somebody like that. But the pre-orders matter because- it signals to bookstores, to Amazon, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the world, mm -hmm. print more. <laughs> this is going to be a successful book. And that momentum becomes a virtuous cycle. But that's the first harbinger, the first telltale sign that the book might have legs. So pre-orders are really important. Please do. <laughs> okay. I love it. I'm so happy with, with our conversation and We've covered so fun. many different interesting areas and yeah, I'm really absolutely fascinated. And I know we could geek you. out all day on podcasts. <laughs> I, know, I, I just yeah, know we could it. keep it's, going. <laughs> I, I feel as though I've been a little bit restrained and balanced, but that being said, I would really like your voice to be the last one on the episode and really for you to yeah talk about where people can find you online and presumably where they can sign up for your podcast and hear the journey of your upcoming memoir over the coming year or so. You're a dream interviewer, Lawrence. Thank you. <laughs> so people can find me online at my website, nataliemclean.com. So there's no H, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-M-A-C-L-E-A-N, nataliemclean.com. You can find the podcast if you're already a podcast listener with Lawrence's podcast here. So just search in your podcast app for Unreserved Wine Talk or my name. Again, mm -hmm. that'll find mm -hmm. it too. And then for your listeners, especially Lawrence, I'd like to offer them my free wine pairing guide at nataliemclean.com forward slash interpret. So I welcome everybody to join me there or just email me, natalie at nataliemclean.com. You can find me all the ways on all the social channels as well. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Francis. In the show notes, you'll find my email contact, the full transcript of my conversation with Lawrence, links to his website and podcast, and where you can find the live stream video version of these conversations on Facebook and YouTube Live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. You'll also find a link to my free ultimate guide to wine and food pairing. That's all in the show notes at nataliemclean.com forward slash 220. Email me if you have a sip tip question or would like to be a beta reader of my new memoir, at natalie at nataliemclean.com. If you missed episode nine, go back and take a listen. I chat about whether vegan and vegetarian wines are better for you with Ezra Sipes, the winemaker at Summerhill Winery in BC. I'll share a short clip with you now to whet your appetite. Our vineyard in Kelowna is 
certified by Demeter as a biodynamic vineyard. It has extra rules above and beyond organic. So organic is sort of the baseline, which yeah. means that there's no synthetics being used, basically. And then there's guidance on things they want to see about soil preservation and biodiversity and things like that. But biodynamics really codifies that. You have to have at least 10% of your farm given over to nature habitat. And we have, I think, about 20 or 25% of our farm that's wetland. We have a dry land. We have a meadow habitat. And then you really view the farm as an ecosystem. You integrate animals and animal manures. And you really focus on making your own fertilizers from things you grow on the farm. We make a horsetail tea for mildew control. We make large amounts of compost and we add these herbal preparations to the compost to aid processes of decomposition. We spray basically a bacterial broth all over the farm that aids the life force, if you will, in the soil, but basically the soil food web. If you like this episode, please email or tell one friend about it this week, especially someone you know who'd be interested in the wines, tips, and stories we shared. You won't want to miss next week when I chat with Adam McHugh, author of Blood from Stone, a memoir of how wine brought me back from the dead. He has a great story to tell and some fascinating history between wine and religion. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week. Perhaps a wine that's outside your comfort zone. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemcclain.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.